discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Well, Steve, it's been uh, quite a long while, I think, since the two of us have just kind of sat down to chat through some of the um, changes and stuff that's going on and just the podcast in general. So I thought it'd be good for us to kind of have you give an update to the listeners about you know, what's going on in your neck of the woods and what do you have coming up that's pretty exciting, I think, next year and how yeah. they can find out about that. Yeah, it has been a while. Yeah, it's kind of good to get the band back together. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, so for those newer listeners, we've got several hundred newer listeners. Um, once in a while, Brendan and I will get on and rather than have a guest, we'll actually kick around a concept that we teach at the church. So that's what we're going to do today. But man, yeah, I've been busy lately. Uh, lots of traveling. Because um, the book came out in April, so I started getting some requests to do some uh, seminars, sometimes like a day retreat, stuff mm. like that. So yeah, in a two-week window, uh, San Francisco, Colorado Springs, uh, a state Baptist convention in Denver. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was a good time. They asked for a 75-minute <laughs> sermon. That's a long sermon. Those Baptists, man. I know. And then uh, next week, my wife and I get to go to London. That's gonna, exciting. Yeah, we'll be doing an anxiety workshop in uh, London right next to Buckingham Palace. Super exciting. And the church that's hosting it is using it as a, an outreach for urban London workers who maybe wouldn't otherwise go to church. So hopefully we'll talk chronic anxiety, bring some relief. What's the church in London that you're It's about? Westminster uh, Chapel. Okay. Uh, not confused with Westminster Abbey. Okay. So it's uh, in the in the geography. It's Westminster Chapel, then Buckingham Palace, and then Westminster Abbey. What's the head pastor's name? I think uh, I've seen Howard. It yeah, Howard. Howard okay. Yeah, Howard. Yeah, a good friend of mine. Yeah. That's exciting. And then you've got what's coming up next uh, next year that you're pretty excited about right. here in Colorado. Right. We're going to launch our first ever uh, facilitated experience, a two-day retreat so yeah, here's what's happening. Uh, the book came out, as, as of course you know, we do the book in eight months in our church at a class, Yep. and I'm getting a lot of requests to come and do some kind of a day or two days with people, and I, I just don't have the time. So we thought, well, what if we as a church host a, a two-day, it feels like a conference, but we're calling it a facilitated experience. So there won't be a keynote. It's not like you come and get a keynote. You'll come by yourself or you'll bring a team and you'll sit round tables, six people at a table, and then we'll give you the content over two days where you and the people at your table can can process together. And the reason I'm not doing a conference is because I just I don't believe in the po- power of monologue. I think and, and you know this too, yeah, right? Totally. We have to dialogue this stuff. You have to get with people you trust or or just with another person and start talking out loud and processing. Right. So March 2020, I think the dates are March 10th and 11th. Yep. And um, the, you can just go to stevecuswords.com and, and get your tickets. So what, what is that conference? What is that going to look like? Are you in the morning, they get there, what's going to happen? Like, kind of give us a rundown of what that day is going to look like. Yeah, so people coming from out of town, they have to get in by Monday night. So Tuesday morning, 8.30, we check in. By 9 o'clock, we're at tables. And uh, for about 9 to 4.30, obviously, lunch is provided, lots of breaks, but basically, uh, I'll be giving some content and then you'll be getting quite a bit of time, sometimes 15 minutes, sometimes 30 minutes at your table to work the content in discussion. And then I'll have my facilitators, you're one of them, yep. who will be walking through the room uh, just available to people uh, if they're getting stuck. So, for example, one of the sessions we cover the 
than 19 universal sources of anxiety. And that's a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. So, you know, you and some of the other facilitators will be available to tables to help define and help them get unstuck, but they'll be, they'll be kicking those around. And then 4.30, we'll be done. Come back Wednesday. And uh, really, generally, day one is going to be your anxiety. Day two is going to be their anxiety. So day two is going to be a lot of family systems theory, how to know anxiety in a group. We'll actually get into the deeper tools like a genogram. It's going to be cool. Uh, on stage, someone will present a genogram. And we'll actually, You're not volunteering me for that, are uh, you? We're still trying to figure out. Okay. <laughs> I may be talking to you about it. Um, but we'll have six people on stage and like a group. And the whole room will just witness about 30 minutes of a genogram. And then we'll get them to process. Mm. Same with a verbatim. So what I'm noticing when I, when I do these seminars is we never get to some of the good stuff. Right. You know, like right. these things. So uh, the facilitated experience, yeah, it'll be you'll come away in two days. There's also an opportunity to, to get all the videos so you can run your own class when you're done. And who's this for? This isn't just for church people, right? No, I, like I've already got like a group of travel agents are committing to come. Oh, example. great. I didn't so, know that. Yeah, so anyone, um, it's, you don't have to be a person of faith to come, but about a third of it you'll feel weird because we'll be talking openly about the gospel and how right. how the gospel invades our anxiety. But about two-thirds of it is family system theory and just general chronic anxiety. So I would say it's for anyone who wants to get healthy and it's anyone who's leading a group and wants to learn about group dynamics and, and how anxiety is contagious in a group, anyone who feels like they're tired of being stuck in the same patterns. Right. And ideally, you'll bring your teams. I've already got several people planning on bringing six or eight people because they want to go through it together. Right. And then when they're done, they can come away with a, with a set of 13 videos mm. and all the templates we use in our class. And then they can facilitate it on their own. Plus, if it's, I know this, the experience in general can be just from doing the six month class with the church, it can be really exhausting. Right. Plus, you get a chance, if you're done, to go out and visit our wonderful state of Colorado. That's right. Yeah. We're actually intentionally putting it on Tuesday and Wednesday for people who want to make a weekend out of it. Right. It'll be in March. So, skiers can get to the mountains while they're here. Oh, yeah. It'll still be snowing. You can go fly fishing too if you really you, want to. Actually, you can fly fish in March, <laughs> which is a new hobby you've It is. Up. Yep. It is one of the ways that I've learned how to de stress and um just practice a tool of uh getting away from everything and yeah you know it's been How's great it been? you've been what four or five times so far uh six i'm actually going this weekend too i didn't okay. tell you that i'm going this right. weekend uh, i'm gonna head up to gross reservoir uh kelsey's out of town so yeah it'll be a fun time give it a will see if you can get something yeah i haven't been able to catch anything without you around know, so. right yeah <laughs> yeah my experience when i started fly fishing was you need someone to help you in the yeah. early days for sure it's, it's pretty confusing sometimes so yeah well hey we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll come right back and we're gonna start talking about a new subject that can get really confusing and can be hard to understand sometimes and it's called second order change right on Here's the thing. I don't believe life change happens by just reading a book or just listening to a podcast. I think those are great entry tools, but if you want to experience profound transformation, you have to dialogue with people you trust. You have to test your assumptions about life, and you have to bravely practice a new way of living. 
That's why in March 10th and 11th of 2020, right here in beautiful Colorado, I'm hosting a two-day facilitated experience to help you do exactly that. For two days, we'll go over all the major concepts in managing leadership anxiety, and you'll be sitting at round tables with lots of discussion, lots of interaction time, to give you the opportunity to not only learn some principles and techniques, but put them into practice right there and then. That's why we're calling it a facilitated experience, not a conference. At a conference, you just sit and listen, and of course, sometimes you grab a group of friends and talk it through, but this whole two-day experience is designed to get you interacting early so you can go from being managed by anxiety to managing it. I'll be teaching the concepts, but I'll also have some of my trained facilitators assigned to help you right at your tables as you start to put some of these deep techniques into practice. So, two-day facilitated experience, March 10th and 11th in the Denver area, 2020. Tickets are available now on my website, stevecusswords.com. I'm offering early bird pricing until the end of December and also a discount for groups of four or more. We'd love for you to join in and you can go to the website to see some detail about what you'll be learning and FAQ on how to experience it. Go to the website stevecusswords.com to sign up now. before we get to second order change, which is a deep tool that we teach, um, you're now one of the facilitators of the class that we teach. Right. Uh, and that means people are talking to you more about this stuff. Right. Um, what, what do you find is one of the hardest things for people to get their mind around when they first start this material? Man, I've noticed um, skepticism. Like I... So I have, we've got a small group and I've, I think I've injected three people from my small group into this, this next class series. And this is the one that I've been co-teaching. So it's been really kind of fun to hear them kind of processing through things. Um, but I definitely think that at first it felt like, uh, are you sure? Like this sounds like, I don't know, this sounds kind of, I'm skeptical of this. I'm skeptical of the tools, what's going to work. Um, and then I, I heard a lot of, uh, people expecting it to fix problems yeah. totally. And yeah. that was, I think if I would have went back and listened to myself when I first took it, I probably would have felt the same way. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting to hear people say, I'm here because I want to fix my anxiety when, you know, you and I, you, you've said, you know, this is not something that you do to fix the problem. It's just right. to manage it. Right. So that's been really interesting to hear people say that type of thing. It's like, I want to do this because I want to fix what's going yeah. on in my life. I want to change what's going on. Um, and then just even some of the skeptical aspects of, Hey, I'm not sure if this is really going to work or not. So. Yeah. I just wrapped up a really neat retreat with a, a church in Colorado Springs. And, um, the thing we kept talking about there, and then I got to witness it. It was really cool is the power of, um, bravely practicing. Really? Yeah. What I would say is, is people I've noticed when they go through a class, if they go through the class and then they said, okay, well that's done nothing's going to change. Right. But it's those who uh, are now trying to actually bravely practice. And it was interesting at the retreat when someone said, okay, so really what I'm supposed to do is figure out what makes me anxious and then find opportunities to put myself in that environment. Right. And we're yeah. like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is funny to watch. Cause I think the last class, I'm not going to name any names, but it was the last class that we had, I think you did challenge somebody to go do something that was way out of their wheelhouse. And he's right. like, are you, 
are you serious? Like, are you really telling me to go do that right now? Like it is a shocking thing is, you know, some people I think just come in and sit, Hey, it's like a college class. I'm just going to sit down. I'm just going to kind of do my stuff, get through it, get some stuff out of it. When we're like, no, you need to go hundred percent full throttle into this. And it can be really tough to be vulnerable. Yeah. Like really, really tough to be vulnerable. And some people are still, I've, you know, watch, you watch them kind of like try to hold on to themselves still in some sense. And I don't want to tell you everything that's going on in my life. And, but you ha- I think in some level you've got to because that's how you start like you got to bring it to the light to really start those changes to happen like that's the best way to do it. Yeah, I had a bunch of preachers like not just a lead pastor but other teaching pastors and youth ministers and I was sharing to them that you know one of my early sources of anxiety was I believe the lie that every sermon has to be gold standard. <laughs> And we were laughing about the crazy things I did that I put my wife through where she had to always tell me it was amazing and all this stuff. Anyway, um, they said, well, what's the solution? And I said, oh, the solution is to intentionally preach a bad sermon. Like that's how you fix it. You actually bravely practice. You get out and you can't tell the congregation. And they were just mortified that uh, because there's all this belief under that lie that, oh, if I preach a bad sermon, people won't come back. Right. None of that's actually true. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's been a fun experience learning how to I think co teach a class for me. I've really enjoyed it a lot yeah. so far. We yeah. only had one session, but even mm-hmm. that one session's been good. So really good yeah, so really far. Yeah, in our class we dive into genograms on Tuesday. Here we yep. go. That's yeah. gonna be kind of fun. All right. So one of our deeper tools is this thing you mentioned in the intro called second order change. Right. It's a hard tool to get your mind around. It really is. Um so I I think Man, the first time I encountered it, I think, was the class. And I can remember not really being sure what it was. And it was, I didn't even really discover what it was until this past year when I picked up that book uh, called Brief Therapy with Intimidating Cases. Right. Um, where they actually go through this clinic, um, counseling clinic, and their whole idea is to have counseling be short-term and not long-term. Um, and he, he, they really lay out kind of what happens in the second order change process. Um, so at the risk of confusing some people, would you like to, um, kind of give us a brief overview of what second order change is? And then I can jump in to try to, yeah. you know, make it sound a little bit more layman's terms. Yeah. For people? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it. Second order change is, uh, an extremely powerful tool, which therefore means it can do damage if it's like a power tool. So you right. have to be careful with it, but it, it works. <laughs> Anytime you are stuck in a chronic problem. So it doesn't work for all problems. Right. Uh, even yesterday when I was coaching this group, a couple of them said, here's the problem, but it wasn't the a second order change problem because it wasn't a chronic problem. So a chronic problem is recurring and predictable. Right. So it's usually with a relationship or a, or a group. Uh, and if you – if so for example – if you're in a staff meeting and the same person never speaks up Mm -hmm. and so then at the next staff meeting they don't speak up you're not surprised that's because it's predictable you know they're not going to speak up second order change can help with that Uh, a lot of us use it in marriage and 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 family as well that's where it was born but so basically um the way you know you need second order change is if there's a problem and your attempted solution is either more of the same Right. Or try harder. Right. Yeah. Do you have an example off the top of your head? Um, I mean, I got some from the book mm-hmm. that I could, I could definitely talk about. From uh, Brief Therapy. From Brief Therapy. Book. I think there's a couple of good examples, but those are really like super kind of out of most people's ways. Yeah. 
Um, so I'll just go ahead and give one of those if that's fine with yeah. you. Um, yeah. So one of the cases in the, th- in the therapy session was um, there was this mom, dad, and daughter, and the daughter was um, not eating food. She was uh, um, anorexic, I believe is the term. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yep. Um, and so they all came into the clinic and they're like, well, here's what's going on. So the, the counselor kind of, you know, got some feedback about the whole situation and the issue. Um, and they said, okay, we'll come back next time. It ended up just being the mom and the dad the next session. Um, and they started talking through, you know, Hey, what are you doing to try? Are you trying to get her to eat right now while she's having this condition? Like, Oh yeah, well, she works for us. So we'd go take a lunch um, break and I'd ask her if she want anything and she'd say, no, bring her back something. She wouldn't eat it. We'd set a plate on the table, um, put food on it, tell her if dinner was ready, she wouldn't eat it again. And the counselor, you know, over the course of a couple of sessions, finally gets to the point where he says, you know, what if you intentionally decided to not feed her and forget about it? Yeah. So when you go to lunch, instead of saying, hey, what do you want from lunch? Saying, hey, do you want anything from lunch? And if she says, yeah, then forget it. Forget it. And come back and say, oh, we're so sorry. We forgot to yeah. get you your food. Yeah. And then don't sit her plate at dinner table. And then she comes down and she's, and eventually she says, well, why, what happened? Where's my plate? Oh, we just didn't think you were going to be hungry. Yeah. And the, the point of that was first off, the, the family was really scared. I was like, are we enabling the problem to where she's not going to eat food and she's going to die? Yeah. But what you're saying is when the therapist started working on what we would call a second order chain solution, the parents were concerned that that was going to kill her. Right. Yeah. And I think that's pe- most people's reaction to any second order change problem solution. Yeah. Um, but long story short, eventually she started to, um, eat food on her own. Um, and I, I, if I remember correctly, the problem wasn't that she wasn't eating. The problem was she felt powerless in her life because she was working for her parents and her sisters were, um, the successful businesswoman, And And she she felt living at home. She was living at home and she felt like she had no power over life. And so the real root of the issue for her was I don't have power. So the way that I'm going to get power is by not eating. Cause I can at least control that part of my life. That's right. You can't make me put something right. in my body. And so, I mean, that's a, that's a really kind of far out and left field mm-hmm. issue for a lot of people. But that same idea of, Hey, the problem that you think is actually going on is not actually probably the problem mm-hmm. because you keep doing the same things over and over again. It's not fixing the issue. Yeah. Do you have any like down to earth issues that you've had happen recently? Tons of them, but let's break this one down okay. first. Cause we definitely did dive in the deep end. Right. Cause, cause what we do on the, <laughs> on the podcast is we do actually take, um, uh, counseling theory and we figure out what's useful for leadership. Right. And so you have used a, a life or death story. Correct. But it's because it's from a book that's called brief therapy with intimidating cases. Right. They actually intentionally chose some of the highest stake situations. Right. So let's break this one down. And then, yeah, I'll give like an everyday garden variety one. Okay. But the, with, with second order change, the theory is that most of us try to tackle the problem but in second order change, you spend most of your attention on your attempted failed solutions. Right. That, that would be the, for our listeners, that would be like, oh, okay. So in this case, if the problem is our daughter's not eating, the therapist spent all the time with the parents saying, what are you doing to try to make her eat? Right. That's making her not eat even worse. Right. Yeah. So what our listeners can do is you can try to find a recurring pattern and figure out what's the problem. Like our children's ministry, your wife is one of our uh, directors in the children's ministry. Mm -hmm. They're tackling this right now. The problem is every Saturday night people cancel for volunteering on Sunday. Right Now that problem, and I've been working with them on this, that problem is several problems. It could be 
therefore my family life gets impacted. You know, right. my spouse gets frustrated or something. That's, that's its own unique problem. The problem we've been tackling with them is, therefore we're understaffed Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Now, when we say, okay, well, what are your attempted solutions? They've, they've started to identify, well, one of the things we do is when someone calls and cancels is we say, oh, that's no problem because right. we're trying to be courteous and especially because they're a volunteer. Then another attempted solution is that, that they were trying to figure out how to stop individuals from canceling. So we then had to go back to the problem. This may be hard to follow. But the problem isn't that the same individuals cancel every week. Like we just have a handful of unreliable people and we all know what they are. That wasn't the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is out of a 100 or so volunteers, any 3 or 4% of them are we'll going to cancel. cancel. Yeah. And that's when the light bulb went on and we said, oh, that's like an airline. Right. Like airlines always have people that don't show up, mm-hmm. which is why they overbook. Right, and so we are now working on a second order change. What if you overschedule? Right. Uh, so you have now you have the problem of too many volunteers, and uh, that would be known in this as a reversal. We we reverse the problem. Right. Another simple example would be um, the problem is um, this person on staff said something unkind to me. My attempted solution is I'm going to avoid them. Right. It doesn't actually dissolve the problem at all. Yeah. yeah. So it is complex, um, but yeah, there's 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 a six step process. Yeah. Um, so maybe what if I give you an example and we kind of walk through? I'll give you a fake example yeah. and we'll kind of walk through the six step process. Yeah, let's try it. Um, all right. So let me think here. We've got let's say we've got somebody on staff who um, anytime conflict is brought up, anytime that you talk to them about a hard issue, they retreat into themselves, they stop talking to you and they walk out of a room and just shut down and, and, and total. Yeah. Um, so how would you end up using second order change to fix this problem where this person might be super sensitive to any time that you bring up a conflict or an issue or you critique on this person? Yeah. So you're dealing with a highly sensitive, deep feeling person. Right. And it's chronic. It's like, you know, that when you, you have to talk to them, it's not going to go well. Right. And they're going to get, feel very, no matter what you say, they're going to interpret right. it their own and way. And nobody addresses it. Like it just happens. And then everybody just kind of, all right, well, that's just the way they are. We're not going to mess with it. Right. And so that's what makes it predictable is, you know, oh man, we've all, so one of the ways, this is good, Brenda, like one of the ways to identify a problem is what has everyone secretly agreed to that no one ever talks about? Right. That's oftentimes it. So that's what you're saying is like mm-hmm. everybody knows, let's call her Jane. Okay. Well, let's make it a dude. It shouldn't always be a woman. Right. Let's call him David. Okay. So everybody knows David gets his feelings hurt easily. And then what does he do? Does he retreat and hide? Yeah, let's say he retreats and retreat mm-hmm. and hides and nobody nobody says anything about it. When he comes back, nobody addresses the problem. It's just kind of like, ah, we're just going to ignore that it even happened. So now you're at step two. Now you're saying our attempted solution to the problem is let's pretend it didn't happen and let's let him get away with pretending it didn't happen. Right. That's now the attempted solution. Right. Yep. So then step three, and I think this is one of the most powerful, is if you and I were doing second order change, we would figure out, okay, what is Brendan and Steve doing to make this situation worse? Right. It's got nothing to do with David. It's not David's problem. Right. What, the reason I love second order change is it never makes one person the problem. Right. The anorexic story you shared, the therapist actually sent the anorexic home 
and worked on her anorexia by just dealing with the parents. Right. So then the step three, once you figured out your attempted solutions, which in this case is, okay, we're going to not talk about it. Right. You and I would say, well, what are we doing to make it worse? Right. And what we're doing is we're, we're pretending it didn't happen. Right. And then we're probably, I would guess, afraid to talk to David again because we're afraid of hurting him. Right. And so, so you list all of those, and sometimes mm-hmm. that takes a while. And then I think number four, this is the reason people don't change, is the next step is you and I test all our assumptions going into it and coming out of it. So off the top of my head, I would say, oh, man, one of my assumptions is if we start talking to David, he's going to quit mm-hmm. or he's going to think I'm a mean person, something like that. Right. So you start, that's step four. So step one is what's the problem? Step two is what are your attempted solutions that are making it worse? In this case, we're all avoiding it. Step three is what are you and I doing to make it worse? We're all avoiding it. Mm-hmm. And then what assumptions that we have going in? One of my assumptions is, David actually can't handle uh, a healthy conversation. Uh, right. That's my assumption. What uh, if I destroy the relationship, work relationship? What, what if, if I, I destroy leave? him? Right. Yeah, my assumption is we have more power than we really have. Right. Yeah, my assumption is he's never had to deal with this anywhere else. We're the first. Right. And so he's like, you guys are crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, number five is you figure out who's motivated to change it. Right. So it's you and I. Right. David may not be motivated at all. He may right. be quite happy. And that's fine. That's the best part about second order change, I think, is that if even if the person who is part of the problem isn't motivated to fix it, it can still get fixed outside yeah, of that. That's right. Yep. So with your anorexic, first session in, adult parents drag this adult woman in. I think one of the first questions the therapist said to her, do you want to be here? Yeah, and I think she said no. She's like, I'm tired of my parents telling me what to do. Right. Sent her home because mm-hmm. he knew she wasn't what we call a motivated change agent. Right. Yeah. The simplest, um, the simplest story I know, we'll get back to our fake David. The simplest version I tell is my son on his basketball team. Right. Um, because it's so like straightforward. Mm-hmm. So the problem was he was in middle school. The problem was he comes home from practice and he says, William never passes the ball. That's the problem. So then I lead this poor kid through second order change. Okay, well, what's your attempted solution? I asked my son and we know what his solution was. Yeah, don't pass it to him. I'm not going to pass to William, Mm -hmm. which of course we all know everyone, all of our listeners already know that's not going to work. Right. That's what makes the problem chronic. Mm -hmm. So now it's predictable, right? right? My son and William are going to withhold the ball from each other. So then I had my son list his complicity. That was hard for him because he honestly believed that he was standing up for justice by withholding the ball from William. But what we know is true is William's going home to his parents and he's saying what? He's saying, oh, dude, he's not passing the ball to me Andrew's a ball hog, yeah. 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 So then test the assumptions going in and out and then my son's the motivated change agent and then we applied a second-order solution, which in this case was a reversal Right, which um, is doing the exact opposite, opposite of what you normally do. So I had to tell my poor son, you need to only ever, even if someone else is open, only pass to William. Boy, he didn't like that. Right. And um, he agreed, though, against his better judgment. He he trusts his dad. And he agreed to the way we set it up. You almost, you almost set a second-order change like a prescription. Right. So he was prescribed to only pass the ball to William six times in a row, even if the other kids were open. 
Right. And he never told William this is what he was doing. That's that's a key part, I think, is that's to not magic of tell the other person that you're actually trying to fix the problem. You, you can tell it. them, but the magic of this is you don't have to. You don't have to ever have a meeting. The coach never was involved in this. Mm-hmm. So with David, with our fictional situation, uh, would that be a reversal? I think the solution would be a reversal if we're always avoiding talking to him about it. Our solution would be always talk to David every time about it. Right. So that'd be the opposite of what we do. Mm-hmm. And then if that didn't work, what was what's the next two steps and the the solutions for second order change? Yeah. So all of the solutions are either you apply a reversal, you apply what's called prescribe the problem, you build in an absurdity, or the most easy thing to do is you name the dynamic. But it's not that there's one then the other. You're always looking for the right one to do. So with right. David, the most gentle thing might be you name the dynamic. So for example, oftentimes someone will come to one of us and they'll say, hey, I've got this situation with a person I don't know what to do. And then they lay out what everyone's doing. Right. He does this and I do this. So they've laid out the dynamic almost like chess. And almost all the time I'll just say, can you tell that person what you just told me? So we might go to David and we might say, here's the thing. It seems like you get your feelings hurt really easily and I'm part of the problem because I'm afraid I don't want to hurt you. So I'm avoiding having what I think is a healthy conversation. Mm -hmm. Could you help? How, How can we figure this out? Right. And that would be naming the dynamic. So my middle school son could have gone to William and he could have said, hey, I think what's going on is I feel like you're a bull hog. You feel like I'm a bull hog and we're getting into it. might have worked. We just, William wasn't in the room, so we just applied a reversal. Right. But oftentimes the, the, the kindest, gentlest second order change is to simply name what's going on with the person. Right. But we're just not trained to do that. Right. Totally not. Um, so what would be, so you, you listed the other two, and I think if we don't kind of, put some flesh on that, it'd be a little bit confusing. Right. What is prescribing the problem exactly? Prescribing the problem is the hardest one to get your mind around. Right. But you you named it with the anorexic. Right. If the problem is um, she's not eating, right. then you prescribe the problem, don't feed her. So they didn't do a reversal. You might say, oh, well, we're trying to feed her all the time and now never going to feed her. Right. They actually did a pres- what's called a prescribe the problem. And that's why if you read the book, I think it's chapter two in that book, um, you see the parents reacting, oh, my goodness, if we don't feed her, she's going to die. Right. And the therapist is saying, no, no, if the problem is she never eats, then the solution is she never eats. Right. And, of course, what they're doing is they're, they're breaking the pattern. So another example of prescribed the problem, this is my personal favorite, sometimes a couple will come in and they're fighting uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. And I don't do much pastoral counseling anymore, but when we were smaller I used to do a lot. And so if the problem is we're fighting uncontrollably or the problem is a fight, then I would prescribe the problem. I'd say, okay, this week I want you to fight. And they're like, you're crazy. (laughs) And so I would say, okay, um, how about Tuesday at 6 o'clock? How about fighting then? Right. And they're like, this is the dumbest thing. No, no, what I want you to do is I want you to fight at 6 o'clock, pick a topic and go for it and then come back and tell me how it went. Right. <laughs> and typically what happens uh, almost all the time, they'll come back and they say, we tried to fight and we just started laughing. Right. And the theory behind this is when they're fighting uncontrollably, the fight has them in its grip. Right. 
but when you prescribe it, now they have the fight in their grip. Right. So let me let me let me flush yeah, this out because this is really confusing. It, it took me a long time to figure this out. Yeah. So if my problem, this is, we'll just use this as an example. If my problem is um, that I drive in a construction zone and I get a flat tire. Yeah. You're going to then tell me, if I come to you and say, hey, I keep getting these flat tires from driving in this construction zone. It's, yeah. and there's this problem. And you're going to say, well, how about this? How about you try driving in the construction zone to fix the problem and, and try to get a, yourself a flat tire? So yeah. you're basically saying the issue that you're having, I want you to go ahead and try to do that exact issue and yeah. replicate it. That's right. Yeah. It's, I, I don't think in the particular right. flat tire case, I mean, I'd, I'd yeah. do a reversal. I'd say choose another route. Right, but it's just an example. But no, I did have a, like a dad came in, years, this is years ago, and um, his, his wife had died when his little boy was two. Mm-hmm. And now his little boy's 12 and still trying to get the physical affection from his dad that he needed with his mom mm-hmm. being gone. And so the problem was my son ha- gives too much physical affection. He's, he's sitting on my lap. He's kissing me on the cheek during a football game. It's embarrassing. Right. The, the dad's attempted solution was use verbal and nonverbal cues to tell my son, real men don't do this, mm-hmm. right? And so then what I made the dad do is prescribe the problem. If the problem is too much affection, then the solution is give him too much affection. So, But the reason it worked is because in their dynamic, the son kept having to chase the dad for affection. In the prescription, the dad is now chasing the son with affection. Right. And that's why it's dissolving the problem is you're breaking a predictable dynamic. The son knows I have to work harder and harder and harder to get affection. In the story you told, the anorexic daughter knows the more they try to feed me, the more I have to resist them. Right. So by prescribing the problem, the therapist has dissolved the systemic chronic stuck pattern. Mm -hmm. It's complex. We we even wrestled before this episode whether this was hard for audio. I know. Yeah. It is a little bit tough. But here's what we do is I send out monthly newsletters and um, the next newsletter after this episode is on second order change. So people can go on the website and subscribe and they'll see it in writing, the six-point process we laid out, Great. some examples. And then the book you mentioned will be in that as well. Great. And you're, um, I'm guess, are you saying that, hey, if you got a second order change problem, you can go in and email you. Are you opening the door up for that? Um, I, I <laughs> might be throwing it into the bus I here. I think it has to be done in person. Right. We did second order change yesterday at this session. And even then we spent an hour on it. And mm-hmm. even then I was thinking this was too fast. Okay. So I really think it's a power tool. Um, and I think what we're using the podcast for is, is basically if, if the last 25 minutes, if you're listening and you're saying, I have no idea what they're talking about. I think what we're trying to communicate, Brendan is, there is a powerful tool to keep you from ever getting stuck again. That's mm-hmm. what we're trying to say. Mm-hmm. And if you know of a pattern in yourself or um, I'll give you an example in my own life where I got stuck or in your team, you can Google second order change. You can, I've got a whole chapter in my book. You can read the book that you referenced and you can actually be free from getting stuck. Right. And so this, this may or may not have been helpful for you listening to it. Uh, but like in my own life, um, I noticed as discovery was growing in attendance, we went on this rapid growth that I have a natural unhealthy suspicion about big churches. Right. And so I kept bumping into that. And so 
we hired Tom as our executive pastor, and he has no suspicion of, at all. He believes that any church can be healthy at any size, which is truer than my belief. Yeah. And I then handed power to Tom to to make sure that I would not sabotage us as, as we grow. Mm-hmm. So I'd say I've been cooking on second order change for almost 20, well, over 20 years now. Um, I think I, my testimony is I still get stuck, but I don't stay stuck very long at all now. All right. I think that's, I don't know. Do you have a story from your life? Um, probably that's something that's too personal at this point. I probably yeah. couldn't share it. So yeah, I mean, yeah. might just not go there at this point. That's yeah. okay with you. So. Yeah. Um, so can we do a quick recap then? I think we actually, you know what? We missed one part of the final solution mm-hmm. thing is the absurdity aspect. Yeah. What is an absurdity? Right. Okay. So let's do the six steps. Okay. Step one, define the problem as concretely as possible. Yep. In the children's ministry, the problem was people canceling Saturday night. That's not concrete enough. What we want to say is uh, people cancel Saturday night and it affects my family time. Mm-hmm. Now we have a recurring problem we can get our teeth around. Mm-hmm. In, in the children's ministry case, we ended up saying um, it's not individuals that cancel, it's a statistical number of all of our volunteers. Like they, It actually helped them to realize everyone's going to get sick once in a while. So step one is define the problem as concretely as possible. Step two, list your attempted solutions that are making it worse or keeping it the same. That's really the magic of second order change. Step three, list your own complicity in the problem. Step four, test your assumptions going in and coming out of change. In other words, how did we get here? What beliefs got us to this place? Like my belief that a bigger church can't be healthy that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then belief, uh, beliefs coming out of change. What if this fails? That's mm-hmm. always the question. The reason people stay stuck is they're afraid of things getting worse. Right. Like the couple you mentioned mm-hmm. with that anorexia. Step five is list the motivated change agents who wants change in the pattern and then uh, apply second order change, which is a reversal, uh, prescribe the problem, an absurdity, or name the process. So in the marriage, in the couples that come in where they're fighting uncontrollably, right. it's absurd to prescribe a fight. Okay. That's crazy. That's it, yeah. And they're even telling me, like, that's stupid. Right. But an absurdity flips the power dynamic. You go from being managed by the problem to managing it. Mm-hmm. And that's why most couples come back and they're failed. They failed right. their homework. Right. Then it gets really crazy. You kind of have to tell them off. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if you're not going to take it seriously, then go see someone else. You know. Oh, man. But typically what happens is if you prescribe a fight, they're, just, they're literally looking at each other saying, why are we about to fight because some idiot told me to? Like, I don't want to fight you right now. It's absurd because chronic patterns get us in their grip and now we're out of control and um, flipping the power dynamic and doing something absurd gets you in control. Right. And there was some absurdity in the um, anorexic story. Like, right. They were actually coached to go out on a date, ask her if they should bring food back. Mm-hmm. And then she says, yes, please bring me a salad. And then they were supposed to accidentally forget. Oh, we forgot. Yeah, yeah it's absurd. It's absurd. Yeah, yeah, it really is. You know, actually, as we're sitting here, I do have a, a, a one of the ones that just popped up in my head yeah. from the last year. Um, so I... Um, Sunday morning, I typically am um, in charge of getting the ushers together, doing communion, things like that. So there was this 
chronic problem of having to ask before I got there, having to ask people on the fly yes. about, Hey, can you come in and can you, can you serve communion? It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. And just come on in and give it a try. Um, and so we long story short, we found out two things. First, the, the problem was that yes, people weren't showing up and they weren't when they were scheduled, but the problem was also the complicit problem was that the, my coordinators, they were making the job of serving communion seem super easy and not important. Yes. And so trying to shift that going forward was, Hey, instead of using the language, Oh, this isn't that big of a deal. It's super easy. I try to get them to say, you know, this, this is a huge deal. Like you're getting the opportunity to give somebody communion on Sunday morning. This is a big job and to make people feel important because I think they weren't feeling important. Yeah. And, um, that's been kind of a fun second order culture shift change. So the first part of the problem, if we're going to go with step one was, Hey, people aren't showing up to do this job. Yep. Um, and then the attempted solution was just to grab people out in the lobby that they knew. I would even say the attempted solution was lower the bar so low that it didn't really matter. Right. Yeah. So then you applied a reversal. Right. Did the exact opposite. And then I also did another step too, which is, um, if somebody decided not to come in on that Sunday, then I would call them that following weekend and say, you know, Hey, just check in, seeing how everything's going. Are you doing okay? We missed you on Sunday. Um, is everything going okay? And That's I think a good example, like you, as I'm hearing you, you, if the message they kept getting was, it's no big deal, right? You're sending the message. It's a big deal. But in that case, this is an important catch. You're not shaming them. No, I'm not. You're just elevating the value of this thing. Right. Yeah. And making them feel like that they've been missed too. Cause yeah. I think that's pretty important oh, that's with good. that, with that problem that they were having. Um, it hasn't fixed it a hundred percent all the time. Like there's still sometimes gaps come in and I still call somebody and they might not show up again. And then, you know, we just have to have that conversation at some point, but I think it's definitely helped to cut down on some of that by going through the second order change process. And that, you know, um, it it gives you the option to figure out what you're saying, what's going on here. What am I doing? What am I trying harder to keep doing? That's not working. That's right. Yeah. More of the same. Try harder. Like if, if we can't get enough volunteers, let's just lower the bar even lower. Right. And it's just more of the same. Right. It made it worse actually. That's right. And I think that's why most leaders, like one of the, the entire theses of our whole podcast is that burnout has nothing to do with workload. Mm -hmm. It only has to do with the chronic anxiety we carry. Right. And so why you and I both love this tool is you don't have to be stuck anymore. And right. you, your solution may have made it worse, but it wasn't going to stay the same. Right. And it turns out it's going to be better now. Yeah. Uh, that's what I like about it too. Um, so coming up after we release this episode, I'm actually having my old uh, seminary professor, Jack Holland. He's Woo-hoo. a marriage and family therapist. He's the one that taught me second order change. So that'll be our second shot in this season at letting him tell us what it is. That'll be exciting. But we'll put in the show notes the Brief Therapy book, and then they also wrote a book, and it's simply called Change. Yep. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes too, and it really dives into the theory of all this. Yep. But, man, I think we would both encourage any listener, mm-hmm. this is worth trying to get your mind around. And oh, absolutely. Practice. It's probably one of the most powerful tools that comes out of the class, I think, is yeah. – and it takes a long time. Like you're not going to get this overnight at all. Like yeah. this, this takes a lot of practice, I think, and a lot of dialogue with people yeah. to kind of figure it out. So good. Yeah. Well, man, I enjoyed having the band back yeah. together. Yeah, it was good. Yep. We'll all do right. it again. I'll see you guys later. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss. 